Welcome to the final episode of Battleground for 2023 and the final edition I'll be presenting. I'll be back next year with a brand new show, more about that later. That's part of an exciting new lineup on ADH TV, the home of intelligent and frank conversation. Tonight, the battle for freedom in the Ukraine and Israel and Australia's role in supporting liberty around the world. We'll be hearing from former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who had some sobering thoughts on this topic in Sydney this week. And I'll be catching up with Danielle Pletka, a leading foreign affairs commentator in the United States and in particular on the Middle East, to discuss the world after October 7. That's coming up on Battleground, which streams for one final Thursday evening at 8pm 8, 8 Australian Eastern Standard Time, or you can watch it on demand at adh.tv, uh, on, on uh, YouTube, or for the full viewing experience, download the ADH TV app absolutely free on your smartphone or smart television. Well, the former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson was in Sydney last night to deliver the 11th John Howard Lecture, organised by the Menzies Research Centre. He delivered a characteristically amusing speech which took us on detours speculating on the contents of four and twenty pies, the unpopularity of Russian pop and Johnson's problems with the UK planning authorities as he tries to make extensions to his own home. Kingdom. And I am glad that we have done something to repair the injustice of the early 1970s when Britain turned her back on Australian farmers, on families who had fought alongside us in two world wars, suddenly disappearing. So, yeah, suddenly disappearing behind the EEC, as it then was, tariff wall, uh, with such brutality that I'm afraid some farmers, I'm told, even took their own lives. And I'm proud that uh, free trade has been intensified and that Marmite is now jostling for space with Vegemite on the shelves of Australians. I don't know whether it really is. It jolly well ought to be, uh, in, in my view. At least competing. Marmite, Marmite can compete fair and square uh, with, with Vegemite. And Australian four and twenty pies filled with natural goodness of all kinds. <laughs> the innards of, uh, of all sorts of marsupial species, no doubt. Uh, can at last be sold at Fortnum and Masons, uh, where, where they belong. You know, I, I, I'm, trying to, I'm quite trying to you know, make some, some modest improvements to, to the place I, I, I've got, and you wouldn't believe the, the studies I have to commission into the possibility that newts might wish to inhabit certain, certain portions of the, uh, of the area that is being dug up. And I have to, and I've had to, I've had, not only have to commission studies into these non-existent theoretical, abstract, hypothetical newts. Well, those are just a few of the amusing uh, Johnson crowd-pleasing diversions in a very, very entertaining and engaging speech, the 11th John Howard Lecture. But the thrust of his powerful message is that we in the free West are under, th under threat, challenged by an axis of tyranny from Russia, China, North Korea and Iran, and their proxies in places like Venezuela, Syria and notably Gaza. He made a passionate, perhaps even Churchillian case for why the West needs to offer unconditional support for Ukraine in its war against Russia. And I spoke to Commander Bereza to give him his call sign of the 22nd Mechanized Brigade. And a couple of his, uh, of his officers. And, it was, and I could see them 
hunched over the, over the phone, and it was 3 a.m. Ukrainian time, but they were awake in their dugout, freezing cold, they said. And you know what? I felt a kind of shame, embarrassment, that you know, here we were in the comfort, the ease of, 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 of a Sydney hotel, and there they were, facing the horror of that Russian bombardment. As the Ukrainians have faced that horror for getting on for two years now. And I thought about the awful reality of what is happening to that citizen army, and it's, it's truly a citizen army of, of patriotic fighters. The awful mutilations that they're suffering, the First World War injuries, both to body and to mind. And yet these guys were smiling as they talked to me, they were smiling, they were joking, and they were beaming with pride because they were defending their country, fighting for their hearths and homes. And I told them what I know and what I believe, and that is that they will win, and that they must win. Because those soldiers, Commander Bereza and everybody in that mechanized brigade, in that freezing trench in, in Bakhmut, they are fighting for all of us and for freedom everywhere. And I want to thank Australia, by the way, the people of Australia, for all the help that you've been giving Bushmasters, a total effort worth more than $900 million. But I've got to tell you, I think there's more that can be done. Don't you? I really do. And both our countries, both the UK and Australia, uh, can be giving more. And at this critical time, I hope you'll agree with me when I say to Congress in the, U in the US that the investment that is now blocked, this support for Ukraine, is the most cost-effective investment you could imagine in the long-term security, not just of the Euro-Atlantic area, but of the world. America has given 75 billion. I think it is, it is. America's given $75 billion. This is just 5% of the annual US defense budget. Most of what it buys actually, of course, goes on jobs contracts in the, in the US. And think what that investment buys. If we can help we, the collective West, supporters, friends of Ukraine, can help them to push Putin out of their country, and they will, don't fall for this strange, uh, irrational view that Ukraine uh, can't win. They've already kicked Putin out of 50% of the territory that he occupied, okay? So, you know, they're going to win. They're going to win. And if they can do it next year, as I think they can, then we can dramatically reduce the risk of Russian revanchism everywhere. We can help protect Georgia. We can help protect the Baltic states, the whole periphery of the former Soviet Union after decades of being pushed around, the world's democracies will finally be sending a signal that we're willing to stand up for our values, for the cause of freedom. And that signal will be heard wherever an autocrat is meditating an attack on a neighboring democracy. Well, the great threats to democracy and freedom include, of course, the Middle East, which is why we have to remain lockstep with Israel, a lone bastion of freedom, steeped in the Judeo-Christian heritage we share 
against the barbarians at the gates. We will be embarking on a new dark ages of geopolitics in which might is seen to be right and the world's autocrats believe that they have the upper hand. And so, of course, Putin is thrilled by the appalling events in Israel and the inevitable distraction from Ukraine. Okay, he doesn't admit that he's thrilled, but believe me, uh, he, he relishes the distraction. And of course, the Iranian regime rejoices at the atrocities committed by Hamas. Indeed, it's no coincidence, is it, that Iran is providing drones for Putin and providing funding and training for Hamas. Because what we're up against now, the Western liberal democracies, is a great global continuum of evil. And we, it's an arm wrestle. And we must prevail. And on the way, by the way, we've got to stamp out the anti-Semitism that is sprouting again in Western capitals. It means Jewish kids are once again afraid to take the bus to school in case they're bullied. And middle-class intellectuals tear down the posters of Jewish kids being held hostage by Hamas. And we must call that out for what it is. The emergence beneath, from beneath the collective floorboards of the ancient spore of anti-Semitism. That lazy, horrible, diversionary tactic of the, of the human race. Ancient thing to blame another group for your own failings, to blame Jewish people for things that are going wrong in your own state and your own society. And instead we should focus on the reality of what happened on October the 7th, which was that Israel suffered a disgusting and deliberate terrorist attack. And whatever Israel's failings as a, as a country, it is a democracy. And it is reasonable for a democracy to try to protect itself against terrorism. And so we've got to stick up for these two democracies, Ukraine and Israel, because the events of the last 20 years have shown us and reminded us what conservatives have really known all along, that history isn't actually, it's the Whig view of history, that's conservatives with a small c, the Whig view of history isn't actually necessarily correct. It isn't a one-way ratchet towards progress. Things can go backwards and go dark again. And we're living at a time now when 70% of the world's population live under autocrats of one kind or another. There are probably only about 42, 45 liberal capitalist democracies in the world, of which we happen to be representatives of two of the most important. And more than three decades after the end of the, of the Cold War, we're all wising up to the fact that democracy is far more fragile than we've realised. Well, uh, Boris Johnson has his faults, some of which are being examined now by the UK's COVID inquiry. But in foreign affairs, he was a secure rock from fr of freedom and a firm ally of Australia. Johnson together with our own Scott Morrison and America's frail president, Joe Biden, share one important legacy, the AUKUS agreement, the sharing of nuclear submarine capability with Australia, the biggest Australian defence pact 
since ANZUS 70 years ago. Whatever mistakes those leaders may have made, history will salute them in securing a coalition of free states in the rising face of evil. And uh, congratulations, by the way, to my Menzies Research Centre colleagues, to David Hughes in particular, for securing Boris for the 11th John Howard Lecture. Yesterday, we woke up to the shocking news that the Albanese government has abandoned its support of Israel. Overnight, it seems, Australia had changed its position by voting in favour of a UN General Assembly resolution calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. That's, of course, never going to happen. The notion of a humanitarian ceasefire, while the terrorist organisation that runs Gaza is still holding innocent civilians hostage in a flagrant breach of the international rule of war, is absurd. To sign up to such a resolution, one that doesn't demand that Hamas be disarmed or doesn't demand it abandons its practice of turning civilians and hostages into human shields, makes the idea of a sustainable ceasefire a joke. Australia's support for the resolution puts us at odds with our AUKUS allies, the United States and Britain, and it puts us on the same side of the argument as Russia, China, North Korea and Iran. Australia should have joined our many allies amongst the 10 countries which took a principled stand against this resolution, or at least be amongst the 23 which abstained. The best way to end the suffering in Gaza is to bring the war to a sustainable conclusion as rapidly as possible, and that means Hamas must be disarmed. It won't be achieved by allowing armchair pundits like Foreign Affairs Minister Penny Wong to pontificate about how Israel should be fighting a difficult but necessary war. A ceasefire which leaves Hamas in control of Gaza will allow it to rebuild its military capabilities with the help of its friends in Iran. And Hamas, don't forget, has repeatedly expressed its determination to repeat the unprovoked massacre of October 7, quote, again and again. Under those circumstances, Israel has no alternative but to wage war until Hamas is utterly defeated. As Greg Sheridan wrote in The Australian Today, the Albanese government doesn't even have the courage of its own lack of convictions. It's speaking out on both sides of its mouth to say contradictory things in the hope that contradictory ordinances can be simultaneously appeased. The Albanese government's position reeks of tawdry electoral politics. Everything now is reactive, low-grade electoral politics. From day one of the crisis, the Albanese government has been ragged without the moral clarity Joe Biden has brought to the issue. Israel needs friends it can count on right now. Shamely, shamefully, Australia, under this government, is not among them. It's just 60 days since the terrible atrocities of October 7 in Israel, the worst massacre of the Jewish people since the Holocaust, and a moment that changed the world. It's too early to come to firm conclusions, but the world certainly feels a very different place after the unprecedented brutality of those attacks and the bizarre reactions in the Western world where the intelligentsia finds itself using the talking points of terrorists. More than ever, we need objectivity and clear-mindedness to assess where we're at and how best to save Western civilization from the barbarians without as well as within. That's why I was delighted to catch up with Danielle Pletka this week, an Australian who's become a leading foreign affairs commentator in the United States and in particular on the subject of the Middle East. 
Danielle is a former editorial assistant with the Los Angeles Times and Reuters who worked in Jerusalem from 1984 to 1985. She now works at the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative Washington DC think tank, where she's vice president for foreign, Af and foreign affairs and defense. I caught up with Danielle in Sydney, where she was visiting as a guest of the Australian-Israel Jewish Affairs Council. Danielle, can I ask you to comment first on what I think a lot of us thought was the extraordinary stance that the Albanese government has taken towards Israel, calling for a ceasefire, um, as if they knew how to conduct a war better than the people on the ground? Well, that's something they have in common with a lot of other governments. Uh, nobody ever hesitates to tell the Israeli government what to do. So it, I think the word you used is correct. I think it is extraordinary. Um, uh, first of all, it's not what we were promised by the Albanese government, uh, whether it's where the embassy is, whether it's a decision to refer to the Palestinian territories again in sort of 1960s terms as the occupied Palestinian territories. It's as if a group of, of you know, graduates from 1972 uni all got power in, in Canberra and decided that everything they ever thought in uni should be the foreign policy of Australia. It's really terribly disappointing and it's wrong it's bad for Australia, it's bad for its relationship with its most important ally, the United States, and it's bad for the Australian people because it represents the kind of values that I think the country doesn't share. It doesn't even represent a coherent foreign policy to me, it's, it's more just a string of cliches, isn't it? That's very well said. You know, you cannot say Hamas must be destroyed, which is of course the Israeli aim, and yet there must be a ceasefire now. Either there's a ceasefire now and Hamas is not destroyed, or Hamas is destroyed. But they, they don't care. It's exactly what you said. It's a bunch of sentences that belong on placards that a foul Sydney demonstration against Israel um, masquerading as a coherent foreign policy. In the United States, there's no clearer um, indication of really when the chips are down where the Biden administration stands on this, are there? I hope you're right. I'm a little bit nervous. I think we're coming to a crunch point. The problem is that, to my mind, the foreign policy of the Biden administration is actually the foreign policy of Joe Biden. Now that's the way it should be. He's the boss, he's the chief executive, but of course that's not always the way it is. And so the most important thing here is to understand that Joe Biden's administration is full of people who are Obama administration people. He was obviously Obama's vice president. And these are not people who are friendly towards the state of Israel. These are people who are more friendly towards the state of Iran, honestly. So when you look at the foreign policy that has existed since October the 7th, what you really see is the voice and the clarity of an old school American big D Democrat, right? When the Democratic Party was the party that supported Israel. The problem is that's not where the Democratic Party base is anymore. And as we creep closer and closer to the election, and as Biden loses more and more numbers in the polls, which he has because of this, because of his base, which is anti-Israel, then you see that pressure building on him. So you actually saw a break where he started to actually publicly say, you know, Israel needs to slow down, fewer deaths, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe cool it, maybe finish up soon. Well, these kind of statements from the Canadians, well, you expect it from them. <laughs> <laughs> Justin Trudeau. <laughs> um, 
the New Zealanders, even I mean, I, I guess they're new, uh, new. They've got their feet under the table and they haven't really quite got their head around things. But anyway, do these kind of statements, you know, Israel needs to declare a ceasefire, fire, it needs to act proportionally, all this kind of language. In the end, is that going to influence Israel at all? Or does it just make it feel even more that it's on its own and it will just do things the way it has to? What comes out of Canberra and, and, and you know, um, New Zealand and Canada isn't going to influence the Israelis. That's just the chorus of, of, of haters, you know, that you see at the UN and, and from various lefty governments in South America or in Africa. And I don't think that at all is, is a, taken with any weight in Jerusalem. But I do think that, uh, that if the United States begins to shift even slightly, that has to impact the Israelis, simply because the United States is, is the, the bulwark. It is the most important ally for the Israelis. It's also the source of a lot of ammunition resupply, weaponry resupply. And so that, again, I think is going to be, you know, a, a monkey on their back um, telling them that, you know, hurry up, hurry up. Do this, do it faster, do it faster, but kill fewer people, but do it faster, get it done. And then we can move on to phase two, whatever the heck that is. Two things stick with me about October 7th. One is the, the barbarism, the extent of the barbarism in an inhuman manner about 10 degrees anything more than I imagined a human being could do to another human being. But alongside that, you've got this extraordinary reaction from, if I can call them the intelligentsia in, in most of the world, often feminists involved, um, the supporters of LGBT rights, etc., all getting on the side of Hamas. Queers for Palestine. Oh my God, is there anything that encapsulates the stupidity of this? You know, a place where, a place where if you're gay, you are not simply, uh, you're not simply harassed or, or discriminated against, you're murdered and, and uh, uh, yes. How do we explain it? Well, I mean, there's, some there's one intelligent word. intelligent people seem to be. No, so. there's one word and I would not have used it before October 7th, but I have stripped away any of my inhibitions about this. This is anti-Semitism, okay? This is excusing the wanton murder of Jews, the brutal, as you say, beyond really, beyond things we think are possible. And, you know, Israel likes to say Hamas is ISIS. This is worse than many of the things that ISIS did, right? Um, the stories that we've heard, the things that people saw are unspeakable. And, um, and, and if you cannot bring yourself to condemn this, for whatever your ideological reasons are, then you, it's because you're an anti-Semite. And I know that sounds um, like a reductio ad absurdum, you know, it's, it's just too simplistic. But that's the answer. Why is it that it's okay to do that to an Israeli, to a Jew? There's no other answer than because you believe that the Jews deserve it. Once again, it's all reduced to, to cliches, it's not you suspect that many of those people out there, those rallies, particularly the school kids that are out there protesting, wouldn't have a clue about where the Euphrates River was or where the River Jordan lies or... Or, or what Palestine is. What Palestine is. Absolutely not, but this is indoctrination. 
that's what it is. And you know, some of the most intelligent. I, I, my, I with a colleague, I have a podcast, and we've been very heavily focused on on this because we talk a lot about foreign policy in America, and we've really sort of dug into the ideology behind this. One of the things that people fail to understand is that while you know Marxism failed in the Soviet Union, Marxism failed. <laughs> failed in other places. This really is a sort of Marxist-style campus ideology. It's not liberalism, you know, small l. It's not leftism, big L. This is the kind of authoritarian, totalitarian idea that rests within Marxist ideology. And I'm, I'm not some sort of right-wing lunatic. Well, maybe I am some sort of right-wing lunatic. but. Um, but this is where this comes from, and the facts don't matter, and you must sign up to the whole panoply of ideas, right? Mm. It's not just that you need to sign up to, I believe there should be a state of Palestine. You have to sign up to the idea that Israelis, Israelis are colonizers, that Jews are the oppressor class, that they are the white supremacists, that opposing this is is being against racism. It's this mishmash of ideas, and you've got to sign up for the whole thing, yeah. right? And this is the problem. And so we've got little kids standing there, you know, with kafirs wrapped around their head, representing themselves as terrorists when they're babies. They have no idea. The memory is so short, isn't it? The attention span is so short. Uh, you know, you despair about what they're learning about, say, the Holocaust, that defining moment in the 20th century. Do they even know about it? Well, you saw, I don't know, maybe your, your listeners and, and, uh, and viewers had, saw that last week a poll came out and that one in five, so 20% of American young people, believe that the stories of the Holocaust are, didn't happen or are very much exaggerated. Now, all I can say about that is, that's not shame on them, that's shame on us, sorry. Uh, you know, the education system, uh, upbringing, parents, um, the culture, you know, uh, you know what, you know, you know what the most important meme on TikTok is, but you don't know that six million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust and how, sorry, that's, that, that should be a cause of, of horrified introspection in every one of our countries, but it isn't. Boris Johnson spoke in Sydney last night, he gave the 11th John Howard lecture and gave a rousing defence of the free world and the need to stand up against tyranny. And I thought he linked very well the causes with which we should be linked now. One, defending Ukraine against uh, Putin's aggression because, as he put it, that's the most cost-effective way of putting tyrants in their place. But secondly, he linked it to Hamas and said that, you know, Putin would be rejoicing at the distraction. Uh, and Iran is arming both Russia and Hamas. Uh, you know, you can see this link there, that, that this is, a, this is a, a battle that is far more important than what happens to that little relatively small strip of land in southern, on the southern border of Israel and Egypt. Well, and let's bring it back home to Australia as well. It's not simply Russia, it's not simply Iran, it's also China. Right? The Chinese have, since October 7th, flipped in ways that I think have surprised even very acute China watchers. They have sided 100% with Hamas, 100% with Iran. They have, on their domestic sites, they have erased Israel from the map. They have promoted on Du Yin, their own domestic TikTok, 
anti-Semitism that is so virulent in its nature, it's the kind of thing we haven't seen in 50 years. This is what the Chinese are up to. Now again, you know, no, people here may say to themselves, I don't care what the Chinese think about Israel or Hamas, but at the end of the day, what you see is, and I'm going to say it, you see this axis of evil, right? And the only thing that we need to remember is nothing stays in Ukraine, nothing stays in Gaza, it doesn't stay there. If you don't oppose it, and I'm sure, you know, Boris Johnson alludes to this, right? If you don't stop it there, when it's cheaper and easier, and we don't have soldiers on the ground, it will come and find you. That's the point, isn't it? So who, who, who are you standing in the grandstand alongside cheering this side on? And if you find that it's Putin and Iran and President Xi, you, something's got to tell you you're on the wrong side of the argument. Isn't that obvious? I mean, <laughs> shouldn't it be obvious? You'd think. You would. You would. You would. To Israel itself, what's your reading from the people you've been talking to, what you've been studying, about the mood within Israel? Um, look, you know, I've talked to a lot of Israelis, obviously, and, and this is... I talk about anything, but actually the Middle East is my area of specialty. Um, I think the mood within Israel is still very much on October 7th, and uh, um, that's actually becoming a problem. And I say that not because I don't empathise and don't understand just what kind of a, a, a national trauma this is, a, an open and a bleeding uh, wound. There are still hostages on the ground. They're still learning stories from the people that were released. They lost, uh, they lost 11 soldiers yesterday. The fighting's getting harder. The goals are getting harder to meet. The global support is eroding. Um, and what the Israelis need to do is to start thinking about what's next. And I think while there are some practical-minded people who know that's the imperative, it, it, it's, it's 60 days, you know, 65 days. It's not 20 years ago. It's very hard to think about how I'm going to deal with these people who celebrated from the rooftop you know, the people who won't end up dead, who celebrated from the rooftops, who participated in stoning and throwing and harassing and attacking and celebrating what happened on October 7th. It's very hard for them. Um, but this is what happens when you're a country. You're not an emotion. You're not a movement. It isn't the Zionist movement that it was before 1948. Israel is a modern, very successful, um, wealthy country. And it has to start thinking about what the next steps are. And um, that, I think, is going to be the big, um, the big hump they need to get over in the coming, in the coming weeks. I mean, the two-state solution, that's the, the hope we've been clinging to, despite everything for probably the last 20 years or more of diplomacy. I mean, it, that, it, we, we, you would still like it to be possible but everything tells you it's pretty much impossible after this. Well, you know, it, it's become a, a, a hallmark card. You know, Merry Christmas, Happy Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and two-state solution. You know, this is a meaningless phrase. Um, you don't build a state on a terrorist organization. You don't build a state and support it that's going to come and find you and do October 7th again and again and again. You don't. Uh, the Palestine. This is the you honest, can't. You, you can't. And and here, 
The onus is not simply on the Palestinians, um, because many Palestinians are victims of Hamas. Many Palestinians are victims of the Palestinian Authority, of Fatah, the, the main party there. It is also the responsibility of all of those who love to, you know, who love to preen about their virtue in supporting a two-state solution to actually understand what a Palestinian state can look like that can live in peace and security with Israel. That's the problem. Nobody ever wants to get beyond the card. Nobody ever wants to get beyond the line and say, oh, what is Palestine? What are the institutions of Palestine? Who's going to be governing there? Is it going to be a terrorist state? You know, is it going to be the caliphate? I, the ISIS caliphate? Is it going to be another Iran? Because, you know, nobody will give a damn, of course, if it is down the road, because that's the fate of the world. Look at, look, you know, look at, look at, uh, look at Africa, you know, oh, liberated from the colonizers. Okay. Oh, <laughs> wow. You're a dump, you know, a human rights violating, poverty, grifting, corrupt state that oppresses your own people but nobody cares anymore because it's not the Brits doing it anymore or the French doing it anymore. Mm. We need to be more adult than that and understand that uh, this needs to be a state that serves the Palestinian people and responds to the security needs of the Israelis, not a state that just makes us feel good about the fact that we back the two-state solution. Yeah, so it comes back I suppose to where we started about foreign policy built on cliches, we've got to get beyond that. We've got to start having adult conversations yeah, well, about the real world, a world that involves trade-offs. Yes, well, you, you know that expression, from your mouth to God's ears. I, I've, been, I've, been, <laughs> I've been working on this area for 40 years and I haven't seen any maturation in that regard at all. <laughs> Daniel, it's been great to have you on Battleground and uh, maybe we'll talk to you again soon. Well, I hope so. Thanks for having me. Great questions. Well, as we reach the end of the second year of operation for ADH-TV, it's time to reflect on what we've achieved and what there's still to do. Thanks to you, the ADH-TV community, we've proved there is a valuable place for independent, fearless conversation in a media landscape that's become increasingly predictable. If you want a sock puppet for the dreary, dispiriting, woke nonsense, you're tuned to the wrong channel. And the best is yet to come as ADH-TV plans a new lineup, new programs and presenters for 2024. Battleground will continue in a different form with some fresh ideas, fresh faces and new vigour. And I'll be moving on. I'll be moving on to present a brand new program, Reality Bites, based on the success of my Substack site, Reality Bites. I'll be working on that over the summer and telling you more about it in the new year. Battleground's been a great adventure. We've been out and about around the country, innovating, I think, doing things very differently and uh, more in a more agile way than uh, conventional television. Hearing your stories about junk energy and the madness that's destroying our countryside and just meeting you generally. Uh, thanks to the great team here at ADH-TV for making this possible, particularly to Jack, Charlie, Martina and Fred and my colleagues at the Menzies Research Centre. Most of all, of course, thank you for watching. And uh, just to play us out on this final episode, Charlie's selected some of his favourite mo moments from the show. What he says are the highlights. Let's find out. I'm coming through here because I've been told that there are old turbine blades that have been just dumped here. Here they are. This is renewable energy by the way. Remember that word renewable, uh, there's 
there's there's nothing much renewable about these things they they these are old turbine blades quite short ones actually i mean they look big but they're some of the early 20 meters i think and um now they've worn out you can see you look at the quality of it it's not much life left in that can you recycle it <laughs> good luck great beached whales sitting here these massive they're not that massive compared to the ones we've seen in action today so when they run out of course what are we going to do with those same same deal right <laughs> just sit here this tells the story so 1.4 billion dollars for the Chilumban wind farm and in 15 years they'll just be sitting here like this <laughs> almost every night right now massive convoys assemble to carry blades from ports to the inland areas and they're clogging our highways and causing disruption to local communities this morning I caught up with one such convoy on the Hume Highway near Yass. Yass, about five or six in the morning. I've had a tip off that a turbine blade is being transported to Rye Park, one of the biggest wind farms in Australia. I think I've just seen the police cars pass by, which indicates that something's about to happen, I think. These 75 metre blades are on the last stage of their journey from Denmark, where they were manufactured, taken by ship, I believe, to Newcastle. So this is approaching the back end of the convoy now. So this is, you can see the operation here, police cars, front and rear. They've mapped out this route long before. Uh, this is all part of the planning process for the wind farmers. They have to provide details of the route where necessary on country roads. Has to, the roads have to be, in some parts, widened to accommodate these things. I can see far up ahead, probably about 500 metres down the road, the blade just now making its slow right turn across the highway. The convoy arrives every morning at dawn with the police escort negotiating its way delicately through the narrow lanes that lead to Ride Park. A huge turning circle of heavy duty road has, has been built just for the trucks. They need this area in order to get round the uh, bend with a load almost 100 metres long. It, could, it can't negotiate the 90 degree turn onto Road Ride Park, so this has been built instead. Just watch this. Before the wind turbine development came along, Ride Park was just a quiet rural town with a post office and not much else surrounded by sheep paddocks. Now it's an industrial zone with looming 200 metre turbines in position around the hills. Constructing a, a turbine development on such a huge uh, scale on rugged hilly terrain is a major engineering feat. 1.5 million two cubic tonnes of cut and fill bulk earthworks works had to be constructed along with 80 kilometres of access tracks like the one you're looking at here. There were crane hard stands and crane assist pads. All in all, the project uh, just costs uh, around a billion dollars. It includes uh, ex two uh, 330 volt substations, 28 kilometers of transmission lines, 
eight kilometres of overhead lines and over 90 kilometres of underground cabling. Latest estimate, as I say, of the project, $1 billion. The spin they put on these things is just incredible. 210,000 homes is what Rye Park is supposed to power. Well, build two Rye Parks and you've pretty much covered Canberra. I mean, perhaps we might put up with the industrialisation of the Ass Valley for that purpose. But, of course, it doesn't work like that, does it? You know, this is intermittent power number one. It's uh, unpredictable. You need backup. And you're only getting about 25 to 30% of that wind over the year. So... 400 megawatts, more like 100 if you're lucky, and then you, you don't know when it's coming. I mean, can we have some wind on Thursday, please? Be nice, wouldn't it? Vast areas of the Australian countryside is, are being turned into industrial zones that are anything but green. Local communities are frustrated and angry, outgunned and outresourced as they fight to serve, save their precious countryside from the bulldozer. Last week's rally was a sign that something big is happening. Communities faced with the blight of renewables are organising. They're forming alliances on social media, pooling their knowledge and finding better ways to fight back. We're here to make some noise, we're here to get noticed and um, we want our voices heard. And we've invited, um, we invited Minister Scully for planning. Uh, he's declined, we, we wrote to the Premier and we wrote to the Minister of Environment, Penny Sharp. Um, the invitation is still out there for them to come. This is the start of something big. We are not going away. Chris Bowen, you didn't ask our permission. Piss off! for our future. We are trying to preserve the land. Sing along and dance. If you wake up and don't want to smile If it takes just a little while Open your eyes and look at the day you see things in a different way Don't stop thinking about tomorrow a day of passion and exuberance, a clear warning to the government that while renewables may be a sacred thing in the green religion of the inner cities, in the rest of the country they're poison. After Mount Emerald, focus shifted to Caban Forest, where the destruction has occurred on an even greater scale. Residents have been mounting a series of protests at the site for months. At the most recent, the, uh, the official commissioning of the plant late last month, the protest was mostly peaceful. Protesters standing in the road to make their point, officials and dignitaries entering the site. Peaceful, that is, until this happened.
is the Deputy Mayor of the Tablelands Regional Council, Kevin Cardew. Let's watch it again. Cardew pauses his Hilux and then apparently deliberately drives right into the protester and over the banner. After that, things become a little heated. One protester tries to grab his keys. Two men, uh, the two men then front up to one another. Fortunately, calm was restored and, and uh, no one threw a punch. From Tasmania to far north Queensland, Australia's hills and ridgelines along the Great Dividing Range are under threat. Here near Stanwell, less than 30 kilometres west of Rockhampton, you enter another world, a haven for native vegetation and wildlife on rugged hills, all but inaccessible by vehicle and challenging enough on foot. Yet it is these areas of wilderness that the renewable energy industry has in its sights. If the Moa Creek and Moonlight wind farms go ahead, this terrain will be crisscrossed with roads 12 metres wide to allow the construction of wind turbine pads and access areas. It's a civil engineering project on an almost unbelievable scale. So we're coming in, see the cliff face in front of us? That's called the lookout, that mount. Yeah. So this is the Bower Creek project. They want to put a turbine right on top of that. On top of that rock? On that rock there, of the creek here. A big one would be the big 275 going there, Nick, to the tip of the blade. Wow. That's where they've got to take up to 30 metres off the top of these hills to get them under the specs. Oh, you are kidding. No, they need a four hectare pad to be able to turn these monsters, the trucks around, and the trucks are basically 130 metres long with the 100 metre blades on it. Because you remember, you've got to have a 400 ton train get in there. Oh he, yeah. And he's got to be stabilised. He can't, he can't be flapping in the breeze. So there's what you're seeing there on the top of that ridge line, seven turbines right on the fringe of the top of this ridge line, seven. You, you can take that, take four hectare pads on that. There's not going to be much of that hill left. Man doesn't get around much on those hills, I can tell you. This is this one's a scary one. This, one, this so this mountain, this is Black Mountain that's coming up towards us. Black Mountain. Black Mountain. Yeah. He's 430 meters to, to the tip, uh, to the height of the mountain. And they're going to put one right smack bang on top of it. He's gonna have a he's gonna have a little brother though because he's gonna put one right on top and the little knoll beside him, that's his brother. There's one going there as well. So you put 275 metres on top of that, I think we're gonna have some problems. Because you can see how much dirt's gotta be removed. Oh it is criminal. It should be fenced off the crime side. Well, Nick, we haven't finished. We're not going <laughs> to... 
So the amount of earth that's got to be shifted between those two knolls to get a 130 metre truck in there with a blade on it, let alone a 400 tonne truck crane to, to build the damn thing, I think, I think they're kidding themselves, to be honest with you. Wow. It's unreal, isn't it? It is unreal, isn't it? The land area that the turbines will consume will be considerably larger than Stamwell Power Station, which looks tiny by comparison. Yet on the day we visited, Stamwell was pushing out a very useful 750 megawatts into a grateful East Coast electricity grid. The land required to produce that amount of power by wind will be dozens of times larger. Glenn and Nikki Kelly have lived near Stamwell since it was built. Glenn used to work there. But the wind turbines proposed for the land around their property is another thing altogether. So to produce on their scale of things to, to comprehend with Stanwell Power Station, we're looking at seven to ten mile creek projects. Yeah. But that's that's if they're working at a at, at the nameplate. Yes. That's really they never do that. They never can. They never do that. And they're talking uh, CQP, which I've spoken to the CEO of Energy Estate. Um, when we've spoken the amount of projects to go in this area here, there'll be uh, 400 turbines within 30 kilometres of my house. Our goal is to try and get the message to the city, and I think that's been the hardest thing, that they just don't want to know. We can get into media and regional areas. We can. It took us a while to crack the ABC. They came out and interviewed us a while ago, and she basically just said, I don't know if I'll get this up. I'll need to talk to my boss. And I was like, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but we're starting to see it, and we're, you know, we go to the city and start telling people, and they're like, I have no idea about how. What do you mean? I've seen this in dozens of communities up and down yeah. the Great Dividing Range, mm. and uh, and there are many more that I haven't even been to, met others that I haven't even heard. Right. So this is affecting the lives of thousands, probably tens of thousands of yeah. people in rural and regional Australia. You know, and we sit here and we look at a power station that's been putting the lights on for 30 since years. 30 years. It uses this much space. You start doing all the calculations on these new projects and the amount of land that they need and their capacity factors. Once you start doing that, you're just like, this is absolutely ridiculous. The numbers just do not make sense, and you, you can't get that through to people. Uh, uh, common sense and the environment are the two big things, and we, for one, wouldn't be here unless, uh, as a sixth generation unless we were doing something right, because there's a lot of blokes that go gone to the war, yeah. and, um, and I mean, um, but we're still here for one reason, it's because we uh, plan on carrying it on for the, for the next generation, and we've done our job, but I can't expect my, my girls to carry on the farm uh, when they're going to get all this plonked in their lap and devalue their land for one, uh, the, the, the costs of where this is going to blow out to for two, um, they're, they're things that my children can't fight for yet. They can't do it. It's up to us to sort it out for them and we're going to do it too. just uh, reinforces the need for some moral clarity in this debate and the, the challenges that we face. I'm here in uh, southern Spain, the town of Granada in Andalusia. It's, uh, it's 
not a special town. Well, it's a very special town in a lot of ways. Two and a half million people come here every year to go to the, see the Alhambra, but like so many other towns in Europe right today, it is uh, engulfed in a demonstration by people supporting the Palestinian cause. Um, I mean, as you see from the kind of people here, they're uh, all kinds, you know. There's uh, obviously people who look like they're migrants to Spain from the Middle East to other parts of uh, the region, possibly from Palestine too, but I would say from looking around, at least half the crowd here are um, the Spanish people, students, people from the LGBTQ movement, people who call themselves radicals, people who wouldn't have much to do with, uh, wouldn't much like living in Gaza, I suspect, but they're here to protest uh, in favour of uh, Hamas, in favour of what's happening down there in southern Gaza. And uh, I have to say it's... Uh, really quite troubling. This is happening all around the world of course, not just here in Spain but um, in Australia too, in, in Britain, in, uh, even in the United States we see this community, even uh, universities, Jewish people feeling threatened by this return of what amounts to anti-Semitism and uh, you can see why when they demonstrate they like to do it quite forcefully. It's, um, it's the children, in a way, that, that break your heart here. It isn't why I came to Granada, I just came across this here. Uh, I was here for other things, but um, that's Europe, you know, it's, uh, a random square in this place, the Plaza, Plaza Nueva, Plaza Nueva in um, Granada, a place where you normally come and have a quiet cup of coffee or a, a cerveza or something like that, a bit of tapas, and uh, today it's been taken over for a very different purpose. We're talking about the most important area of biodiversity in Australia. And to put something, which is essentially an industrial land use, with massive change in the local environment, roads, turbines, access arrangements, etc., right next door to it is nothing short of foolish. And there are plenty of other places you could put a wind farm. That's, that's a big call, the most important area for biodiversity, given what we have in Australia, everything from the Daintree to the Tasmanian forest. On well, what let do you let base me read to you. This is from the Wet Tropics World Heritage Area, the World Heritage Authority's website. The Wet Tropics World Heritage Area was ranked sixth, sixth amongst the global sites. So it's the sixth most important site in the world. And second amongst World Heritage Sites. So it's the second most important site amongst World Heritage Sites in the world for its irreplaceable endemic species and threatened species.
Of the many species threatened in the Chilumbum forest, the greater glider is the one that holds most concern. It's pretty much the end of them. So locally there will be species extinctions. Uh, there are other areas in which greater gliders live, but, this but they are threatened and they are under greater increasing pressure. Size of it. That is a monster. The V162 You get out close, it's just huge, right? It's just so these are massive. And then and then um to imagine that just the sheer the sheer challenge of getting them in here. Yeah. You, you've seen this, right? You've seen it happen. Yeah, yeah, really big engineering challenges. Um, and the, the, you, they've got to get them into really hard spots, up steep inclines, on top of ridge lines, on top of mountains. Yeah. All of this road base needs to be quarried from somewhere else and trucked here. So it's not only pushing the roads in, but then you, you've got to really open up another quarry to provide all the road base. What we're seeing here, Shalumban, 145 kilometers of roads like this through all that country down there. Yeah. See all that, all that country, that's the Shalumban side. So that's all gonna get carved up like this. No, well, here we are, one, two, three, four. So we're gonna need 9,000 of these in Queensland. Bowen's own figures is we should be putting in one of these the every bowl? 18 hours. That's right, yeah. yeah so every bowl. 18 hours we've got to put one of these in. Every day till 2032. The recipient of the Walkley Award for Investigative Journalism and the Graham Perkin Award for Australian Journalist of the Year and author of five books. All I these things are wrong, Nick. I think you'll have to start again. I haven't run a Walkley, haven't won a Perkins. You're mate, just reading off the mate, script. Mate, you're telling me chat GTT is wrong. <laughs> totally. I mean, you, this I, is bizarre, isn't it? You'll have to start again. Yeah, we should have checked this. I so what am I going to miss out? Just the Graham Perkins stuff? Graham right? Perkins, Walkley, never won a Walkley, and I've never worked on regional newspapers. I did a lot of... Okay, um, all right. Uh, you I'll, I'll, you uh, never worked on regional newspapers. Well, the black mark, the black, black mark, mark for AI. Right. Totally, yeah, totally. Just goes to show, doesn't it? All right, no, well, they say it again. makes stuff up and fills in the holes. Mm. <laughs> you better like start again, Charlie. <laughs> you had to have your union fees paid up to enter the Walkleys. I'll just, <laughs> I'll just skip through the script. That's all right. Yeah, just uh, he's won no awards. He will, he'll never win any awards. Nah, nah. <laughs> won the Royal Easter Show, best, best rural reporter once. Okay. <laughs> Thank, thanks, Charlie. Right. Here we go again.